Welcome to those who are visiting. Um, if you haven't been keeping up with us, we're going through a series uh, through 1 Samuel, and we're up to 1 Samuel 7 uh, this morning. We might even have something on a screen in a moment, and hopefully things will work. Um, look at that. Yes. Um, last week, just a little recap, not the whole seven chapters, but last week we saw how Philistines and Israel uh, in turn had to do with the problem of God, his presence, the weighty glory of God in their midst and his holiness. We saw his supremacy over other gods as he defeated Dagon in his own temple. We saw his severity in judgment against the Philistines as they uh, could do nothing but try to get rid of the ark with the plagues and tumours that were upon them. And then we saw his sanctity, his awesome holiness, uh, when even as the ark returned to Israel, uh, some of the men there died in their rejoicing because they were all too quick and eager and they looked upon the ark, which was only meant for the priests of the Lord. Just hearing a little bit of feedback up the top here. I don't know if we can pull that back of the fraction. And in all of that, God's own people asked the question, who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? And as we saw last week, all of that... Um, arose despite the silence of Samuel in those chapters. All of that, um, the fact that he hadn't spoken since chapter 4, verse 1, he doesn't speak again until this morning in chapter 7, and yet everything that happens in between is the word of the Lord, the word of Samuel not falling to the ground. It's the word of the Lord coming to Israel. And now in chapter 7, Samuel does speak up. He speaks again audibly. And have you ever thought about the fact that Just the very fact and truth that God speaks to his people, speaks to us, is a sign of his love for us. That we have a God and Father who speaks to us is testimony to his grace and his mercy to us. He tells us what he desires of us. He tells us his will. He tells us the best way to live. He tells us what not to do. He tells us of his love and reveals his plan for us. All of that is his mercy and his grace to us. God is love, remember. Not just that he loves, but he is love. And so everything he says and everything he does is a word and action of his love. And so just the fact that God speaks to us, that he gives us his word, is a message of his love and an act of his love towards us. And so here, as God speaks to his people, his mercy and his grace, that redeeming love, come to Israel in the words and ministry of Samuel. As he says to them in verse 3 of chapter 7, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. It's a word of God's love to his people. His jealous and holy love. And Bruce read that chapter for us. And if we consider what's taking place here as we hear that chapter and visualise what's happening, we see in the people of Israel that they were lamenting. Lamenting after the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant had come back. We find them in repentance. Repentance before the Lord. They're sorry for their sin and they want to turn to the Lord. And we also see them eventually in victory as the Lord gives the Philistines to them, defeats the Philistines quite convincingly. 
The ark has returned from Philistine territory. It arrived at Beth Shemesh, but caused some trouble there. As I said, 70 men looked upon the ark and they died. Much rejoicing, but plenty of mourning, 70 funerals in a day. And so they sent it to Kiriath-Jerim, where it remained for 20 years or more. And all the house of Israel, we're told, lamented after the Lord. Isn't it good to know that Israel has a pulse? They have a heart. They grieve. They lament after the Lord. This is not just sort of automatic stuff happening as we read the story of Israel. They have a heart. They lament after the Lord. And that's the opening Samuel uses, really, to call them to repentance. But as he leads them in their repentance, in something of a maybe an Old Testament church service, it's like a covenant renewal ceremony, the Philistines gather around and they go up against them, attacking Israel when they're at their most vulnerable and unprepared. And Israel are afraid, we read in verse 7. But this time it seems they've learnt their lesson. This time they don't say, oh, look, look, we'll get the ark here, like a lucky charm, that'll help us win. They don't do that this time. They don't presume upon the Lord to save them. Not that way. This time in their fear, they pray. They ask Samuel to pray for them. They ask the Lord to deliver them. And he does. And so we see the people of God in victory over the Philistines. In fact, we read in verse 14 later on, the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Now that might be what happened on this occasion. It might be more a summary of what took place through the time of Samuel's leadership. We read in verse 13, the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. We know they did in a couple of chapters' time, David and Goliath. So there's chances this is more over Samuel's lifetime as leader over Israel. But we read, The hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Either way, what's clear in chapter 7 is there is victory. There's blessing and there's peace for Israel when the people turn to the Lord. And so we see the people in lament, in repentance and in victory. But that's what we see on the surface. That's that's what we see at the human level. They're surfacings. They're good things. But they're what maybe the teacher in Ecclesiastes would say, things what we observe under the sun, on the horizontal, what we see in the human sphere. But there's more to life, isn't there, than what we just see on the human level. The lament... The repentance and victory that we see here are an outward expression of something deeper, of hidden truths and actions in both the people and of God. Hidden in one sense at first glance, but revealed when we read the word of God and look to what God is doing here. I'm not suggesting what we see on the surface is only, um, it's not genuine. I think it is here. We read, I think their lament is a godly grief which leads to repentance which leads to their victory under the Lord. Israel's lament here, they've been lamenting for 20 years. It's not just remorse, the loss of blessing and the loss of the ark earlier on and that maybe they're lamenting for their sin. This is a godly grief that they're expressing for 20 years. 
But finally, it's a godly grief which does lead to repentance. Genuine repentance, not just saying they're sorry for their sin, not just feeling remorse. In practical terms, they actually put away their other gods. They've been worshipping other gods. That's their sin. For the first time, we actually read Israel. You know, we heard Eli and his sons. His sons were holding the Lord in contempt and doing things around the temple, um, taking the women from the temple, taking the fat from the sacrifices. But actually all Israel are part of this. They've been sharing their love and their devotion with other gods other than Yahweh, the Lord. And now, as Samuel calls them to repentance, they put away those other gods. It is a genuine repentance. And their victory is also genuine. The Philistines are defeated. The Lord delivers them and they rejoice in the Lord with thanksgiving, led by Samuel as he lays the Ebenezer stone. But all of that, genuine expressions, outward expressions of what we see on the surface, are only brought about by the presence of God in their midst, by the preaching of his word, and by the prayer of Samuel, one who intercedes for them. And if I can add another P, it makes a little lopsided, doesn't it? But it's also, if you notice, there's a lamb that Samuel takes and offers as a burnt offering to the Lord. There's propitiation taking place here for the sins of Israel. Our own lives are not lived just under the sun, are they? On a horizontal level, God is at work in your life and mine, in our lives together, the life of our nation, the world. God never slumbers nor sleeps. Do you know that psalm? Whether we acknowledge or not, whether we believe it or not, The machinations of our lives are not simple cause and effect. It's not just fickleness or fate. It's not just chance that things happen. Everything is masterfully woven together by the creator of heaven and earth. And Jesus Christ holds all things together by the power of his word. All things were created through him and for him, and in him all things hold together. Far more than just what we see on the surface going on, isn't there? God is at work. We may not know what God is doing all the time. We may not know why he's doing it. We don't have the benefit of hindsight as we read through the scriptures here and we can see how God, and it's revealed to us what God is doing and why. But what we do have in his revealed word, we know God's nature. He is love. We know his character. He is faithful. We know his purpose. He's bringing all things together in Christ, in his love conforming us to his image and so whilst we might not know the details of every day of our life what God is doing we do know something of God's grand scheme he is working in love redeeming love bringing all things together in Christ and growing us up to be more like his son we can be sure of that every day and so we too can go on in faith and hope and love trusting God back to our four p's God's presence, the ark returned to them, remember? Tangibly, God is tangibly present in their midst in the form of the ark of the covenant. And that caused them to rejoice, yes, but it also caused them to lament after the Lord. Maybe sorry for their sin, their presumption back on the battlefield. Maybe for their syncretism, their mixing up with other gods in their religion, in their faith. Maybe sorry that the ark had been lodged in one place and not another place. 
whatever the reason, they lament after the Lord. For 20 years, their hearts are heavy. We don't like to wait very long for things to happen, do we? A week's long enough, a year, 10 years of ministry. You'd think, come on, Samuel, 20 years, and now finally something happens. Almost a whole generation. For 20 years, their hearts are heavy because of their own sin and idolatry and because of the Lord's weighty presence among them. And then not only is the Lord present to them, he speaks to them through Samuel. Samuel preaches God's word to them. And this is what they hear. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And the promise, he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Now that may be a summary of what Samuel preached that day. It might actually be a summary of what Samuel's been preaching for 20 years and finally they get it. Maybe he waited until he saw genuine repentance in the people and then he brought this word to them and led them in the, in the repentance. Whatever the case, finally he's gone public with this whole covenant renewal ceremony. Gather everybody together at Mizpah and I will pray for you. I've lived long enough to know that some people can be sorry for 20 years and not do anything about what they've done to be sorry for. Maybe you've got something in your life you're sorry for. That's different than repenting of it. You can have remorse. You've been caught out, you've been found out, suffering the consequences, but repentance is different, isn't it? 20 years here is long enough for some people to forget. Some people haven't even been born when the ark returned to Israel. And now they need to hear God's word. They need to learn about his holiness and his weighty glory in their midst. It's time for a new season. There's a new generation coming through. They too need to learn, as we heard last week, how to deal with the problem of God, his holy presence, with our sin and our idolatry, with God's mercy and his grace and how repentance and faith bring us into his presence through the intercessor. But here in chapter 7, Samuel's culture, his generation back in the 11th century BC, as I said, we've learnt for the first time, it wasn't just the priests who were corrupt, all Israel are mixing their faith, their religion, mixing their worship with other gods. As one writer says, be quite convenient really, you've got the temple or a tabernacle, a place of worship in one spot, and then you've got the brothel right next door. That's what was happening. They're mixing their religions, being unfaithful to the one true living God. But God is a jealous God, jealous for our love and our devotion. And sometimes we get the picture that God in his holiness and jealousy was just going to stamp people out who don't worship him. That's not how it is. He woos us. He will not let us be unfaithful. He doesn't say, right, you've been unfaithful to me, I'm off to find someone else. No, he says, you've been unfaithful to me, but you are mine. I'm responsible to you, for you. I want you back. His heart is grieved at our unfaithfulness. And see, he does everything he can to draw us back to himself. He has bound himself to his people in covenant love and promise, hasn't he? And God doesn't break his covenant. 
And he wants us to uphold the obligations of that covenant and to love him with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole might, soul and strength. That's how much the Lord loves us. He doesn't want us messing around with other gods. He doesn't want us sharing the love of our heart and our devotion with other things. And he will woo us back whatever it takes. Sometimes it will be with a firm hand. But all of it, his loving kindness, is what leads us to repentance. As a young boy wanting to hang out with certain other kids in the neighbourhood or at school, my parents got wind of some of what they were up to and they said, I don't know if you should be hanging around with them. They knew better. I wanted, I wanted to be with that group. I wanted to sort of do a few things that they were doing. They, Mum and Dad feared where I would end up if I went down that track. In their jealous love, they were concerned for me. Back when I was a lad, did I think that was love? For me, did I think it was? No. I felt they were restricting me. I thought they were squashing. That's not love. Love makes me do what I want to do, doesn't it? No. Love is concerned for me. I felt it was restrictive. Was it wise? Was it helpful? Protective? Yes, it was. Did I like it? No, I didn't. But now, as I look back, you bet. Grateful for it book of proverbs is something similar isn't it words of wisdom from a father and a mother listen my son to the teaching of your father and the words of your mother look out for the things in the world that you're about to enter into let me share a few things with you so that as you walk in the world you'll know which way to turn and which way not to come along sunday nights this term we're going to be going through some of the proverbs together it's really wisdom for i think parents and teenagers it's written by king to his son, a son who's growing up about to become an adult and be be responsible in the world. And there's some things he needs to learn. He needs to be streetwise as he goes out into the world. Be good for all of us to hear that, wouldn't it? Young people and parents, grandparents. Back to Samuel and the jealous love of God. I've already said it's God's loving kindness that comes from Romans 2. God's loving kindness is what leads us to repentance. And that's what's happening here. The word of God through Samuel speaks God's loving kindness to them. He's he's been patient with them. His hand's been heavy upon them, his supremacy and his sovereignty, his sanctity, severity last week. But all of his action, all of his word is his loving kindness leading the people to repentance. And so Samuel leads them in this covenant renewal ceremony. Turn from the Lord, direct your ways to God. Turn from your idols, direct your heart to God. And there's the pouring out of water, which signifies what? It's not baptism, not yet, but some washing, some purification. There's fasting, there's confession. We've sinned against the Lord. So they're articulating their faith and they're acknowledging they've been unfaithful. But Samuel knows a person can be moved emotionally and can even say things, but unless there's a genuine reality of the heart expressed in outward means, it could mean nothing. And so he tells them, actually put away your idols. Get rid of them, burn them, chop them down. They were physical things for them. We don't see them quite like that, do we? It's not just remorse he wants from these people not just feeling sorry for their sin he wants them to change he wants repentance and that's what repentance is it's a change 
Literally, it's a change of heart or a change of mind, actually. Meta, noia. Meta is, no, is the change. Naus or noia is the change of mind. And in Hebrew, the words that Samuel uses here are actually words which have a, a physical change in direction. If you are returning to the Lord, if you're turning back, if you're coming back to God, then put away your foreign gods, turn away from them and direct your heart. And that word there is not so much directional, but it's actually formational. Shape your heart to the Lord. Be bent on loving the Lord. Like a piece of iron when it's hot can be bent. And then when it cools down, it will not budge. Bend your heart towards the Lord like that, so that you are unwielding from that point on towards the Lord. Nothing but towards the Lord. You know, when you're in your car and you go the wrong way and your GPS says wrong way, turn around, take the next. That's a bit like what repentance is here. You're going the wrong way, turn around, come back and then stick to that path from this way on. And Samuel knows when it comes to repentance, words only mean so much. And so he says, if it is with your hearts that you're returning to the Lord, then do something tangible. Put away your foreign gods. Paul says the same thing, doesn't he? Put off these things, fleshly passions, lust of the flesh, and put on loving, love, kindness, patience, those things. The Lord demands all or nothing allegiance of his people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And Israel haven't been doing that. They've been sharing themselves with the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the Canaanite fertility gods. And we might not have idols of wood and stone, but we've got plenty of things that distract us, don't we? That we share our devotion with rather than just the Lord. Easier to see in another culture, another generation, so hard to see in our own hearts, our own lives. Jesus says the same thing, put them away. If your right hand causes you to sit, chop it off. If your eye, gouge it out. Do something physical, tangible, to put those things away. As the Lord reveals them to you, put them away. Don't just be sorry for your sin. Repentance means actually turning away from them. And here Samuel calls them to do something tangible about it. Put them aside. Put them in another room. Cut up your credit card. Put away your anger. Whatever it is. And as Samuel calls them to repentance, he is more than happy to pray. Gather together at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. And immediately... Right in the middle of their worship, in the middle of this covenant renewal ceremony, their own repentance and their faith is tested, isn't it? As the Philistines gather wind, they hear wind that Israelites gathering together. Now, maybe they think, ah, they're vulnerable, they're having a little worship ceremony, we'll get them while they're weak. Or they've thought, hang on, Israel's gathering together, they're planning to get us. They're planning an attack against us. Whichever way it is, the Philistines hear about it. They tend to hear lots in these chapters. And they actually come up against Israel. And Israel are afraid. Back in chapter 4, something similar happened, didn't it? uh, Philistine came against Israel. What did they do in their fear? They brought the Ark of the Covenant up. That'll help us. Didn't work. 
Not this time. They've learnt something. This time they asked Samuel to pray. Verse 8. The people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Big difference from chapter 4 to chapter eight, uh, chapter 7, isn't there? Back in chapter 4, they were confident, complacent really, as they brought the ark in, thinking that'll save us. But losing. Here, in repentance and faith, they pray, they ask Samuel to pray, and a completely different outcome, isn't it? Victory. Back in chapter 4, it ended with what? With Ichabod. The glory of the Lord has departed. This time, it ends with Ebenezer. Till now, the Lord has helped us. Stark contrast. Ichabod, the Lord has departed. The Ark of the Covenant uh, captured and gone. This time, victory. And Samuel declares to the people and places this monument before them. Ebenezer, the great stone. Till now the Lord has helped us. Not presumption they go into battle with, but prayer. Crying out to Samuel. They know they need the Lord's help. They know they need one to intercede for them on their behalf. Do not cease to cry out for us. They plead with Samuel. That the Lord would save us. And he does. The Lord hears Samuel's prayer and answers him. And the victory they enjoy is from the hand of the Lord. And the hand of the Lord is against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And as I said, we read there how in the midst of his prayer, whilst he's praying or as he's praying, he's also taking a nursing lamb and offers it as a whole burnt offering. As a sacrifice, there's bloodshed for the forgiveness of sins. This is not just a, a ceremony to defeat the Philistines, remember. This is a covenant renewal ceremony. And the Lord is expressing his covenant faithfulness to his people, fulfilling his promise to them. If you return to me, I will defeat the Philistines. And he does. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, right in the middle of it, the Philistines drew near to attack. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. What have Israel done so far? They haven't lifted a finger other than asking Samuel to pray and him taking this lamb. And they were defeated before Israel. Last week we saw in Dagon's temple, remember, Dagon falling over twice, being broken to pieces. And we saw how in Hannah's prayer back in chapter 2, verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. The very next line is, against them them he will thunder in heaven. That's exactly what he's doing here. The Lord's thundered with a mighty sound against the Philistines and he defeats them. And back there, chapter 4, Ichabod, right through to here, chapter 7, it's really one story within the larger story of Samuel. And the bookends here, I think, are important. Ichabod, Ebenezer. Departure of the ark, return. Repentance and victory rather than defeat. And Samuel lays the Ebenezer stone, saying, Till now the Lord 
has helped us. And I don't think Samuel is referring, when he says till now, I don't think he's referring just to this battle in chapter 7. I think he's referring to their failure back in chapter 4 as well and how the Lord was dealing with them in that. How the Lord redeems them through their failure. How he still shows his glory and his holiness and his love to them. Even at the cost of his own glory. The Lord's the one who looks defeated when he's captured, put in the temple of Dagon. He's willing to suffer the shame on behalf of his people that he would actually return to them and they would know his love for them. You might have noticed one of our guys did as I shared this on Monday night at Elders and Deacons. Back in chapter 4, the battle between Israel and Philistine there, Israel encamped at a place called Ebenezer. There's an Ebenezer in chapter 4, there's an Ebenezer in chapter 7. Maybe it's the same place sort of retrospectively named in chapter 4 because of the stone placed here. But either way, I think it's even back in chapter 4 and the loss there, their failure, that Samuel is saying, until now the Lord has helped us. Even when everything looked lost and there's 20 years of lamenting, the Lord is still helping us. Till now, all the way through all our history, the Lord has been helping us. And that doesn't mean, okay, as of today, he's going to stop helping us. No, the stone's placed there. And I think Bob shared a little bit about what we did last term with the youth group. We've got some stones here beneath the cross. It means the Lord has helped us all the way through history, all the way through my life and well before, right up till now, so that tomorrow and the next day, next week and next year, whatever comes, we can know the Lord will be with us and he'll still help us. He'll still be present to us in our midst. His word, he'll be faithful to it as we read it and hear it and live in it and abide in it. And not only are we to pray to God, but he intercedes for us, doesn't he? Isn't that what Christ has done for us on the cross? All of what God is doing here for Israel, hasn't he taken our failures and our sin upon himself? Hasn't he suffered the shame so that we could actually draw near to God? so that we might have communion with him, with the Holy Father? Wasn't that place, the place of the skull, where curse took place, the curse of crucifixion, where God departed his glory, when Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And isn't that moment of great loss, that great death of Christ, isn't that also the place where victory and life is found? And hope, the place where God suffers deepest of all, is the place of his greatest mercy for all, the place of greatest joy, where the Lamb of God, that propitiatory sacrifice, (laughs) took away the sins of the world, and where he intercedes for us in his body, as a sung guy, probably won't five bleeding wounds he bears on Calvary, interceding for me. But also in his words before the Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In the unseen and hidden mystery of the cross, but now revealed to us, where God abandons his own beloved, the glory of the Lord departs, 
isn't there where he's most present. God was in Christ reconciling himself to the world. And isn't the cross where we see most of all the loving kindness of God that's meant to lead us to repentance? The cross really is the Ebenezer of the new covenant, isn't it? So when we next sing, come thou fount, if you didn't know it before, that's why that word's there, the Ebenezer. And we're about to share the Lord's Supper together after this. And isn't that, isn't this meal a constant, regular reminder for us, a monument that the Lord himself has put in place for us to remember his faithfulness to us in the past and to proclaim his death until he comes again? so that we would go on knowing his presence and his faithfulness to us, his word to us in the flesh. John Newton did a pretty good job writing a hymn about it too, didn't he? "'Twas grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us safely home." We too today need to hear God's word, don't we? Others need to hear God's word. I was sharing with the youth group uh, last week, or the leadership team last week, we're talking about Sunday nights and what we're going to do this term, and I asked the question, how are we going to get other people to come along? Unbelievers, how are we going to get your friends and folk to come along? Not just people here to come to Sunday nights. And I said, oh, well, we could, you know, we could, uh, once a month we do our Saturday night youth group social nights and go bowling and stuff. And, yep, absolutely. Other people need to know that us Christians are not just a bunch of weirdo wackos, don't they? We can have some fun together too. And that will be good. But those people need more than just a couple of Christian friends, don't they? They need to meet the Lord. They need to hear his word to them and know his faithfulness and his love and his mercy. We need to speak that word. We need to be praying for them. Did you you see your two young people last week? Our young evangelist and our young prayer warrior last week. When Yoshi was doing the kids' talk as he started, he said, Where's my son? He recognised there was one lad missing, little Shinri. You know where Shinri was? He was in the middle there trying to get another young person saying, come on, come to the kids' talk. My dad's got something worth hearing this morning. Come hear the word of the Lord. Come with me. And then we had another young lad. I've got a prayer for the homeless and that COVID would come to an end. they got more courage than we've got. Would we say to someone, come and hear God's word? It's worth listening to. You need to hear it. Will we pray for one another like the people are Samuel? Pray for us that the Lord might save us. Do you know that someone prays for you? More than one, I'm sure. It's about time we did a new church directory. It's getting a couple of years old now, but... When we do, make sure your name's on it. I use it regularly to pray for you. By name. Day by day, week by week, month by month. But it's more than just me or a few others who faithfully pray for you. Jesus himself, the Lord of creation, prays for you. Interceding for you at the Father's right hand. And the Spirit, when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit intercedes for us. Samuel's a glimpse of that, isn't he, here? 
He's given up his life. He's the Lamb of God. God's very presence in our midst as we gather in his name. And he speaks to us in his mercy and love. Dale Ralph Davis says this about Christ's intercession. Here is the true secret of our steadfastness. We rely on the prayers of another whose prayers are always effectual. Nothing is quite as moving as knowing that I am a subject of Jesus' own intercessory prayer. It's a wonderful thing to know you're being prayed for, isn't it? And all the more when it's the Lord himself, Jesus, praying for you. Let me pray. Father God, we thankful just seems too light a word but we wonder at the fact that you have come to be present to us in your own son you've promised to be in our midst when we gather in his name and father in your mercy and your love you speak to us and you're faithful to your word and your promises to us and even as we pray your son and your spirit are interceding for us And so, Father, we too can know, as Israel did that day, that till now you have helped us, you have been faithful to us, you have brought us this far by your grace. Help us to look back and to remember and to know with great assurance, Father, your faithfulness to us so that tomorrow and every day from here on we will know that you are with us and for us in your Son and you will go on helping us in our times of need and bringing us great joy and hope in what's to come as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.